So now we continue with the study of the greater discourse to Sakal Sakal Udai, the Maha Sakal Udai Sutta. And now the last time we discussed the practice and development of the four jhanas. The four jhanas make up the division of the Buddha's path or the section of the Buddha's training called the training in samadhi or the higher mind, adhichitta. Now we come to the training in, this is called knowledge or higher knowledge. And actually some of these are not really types of wisdom in the proper Buddha sense, but rather they're higher types of supernormal knowledge. We could call them super-knowledges. Usually in the suttas the Buddha speaks of what's called abhinyas, six abhinyas. But here we have an, an expanded version of that list. It's developed into a list of eight types of higher knowledge. I don't think that there's one single term which covers all of these. And the first of these, it's called, in the text, it's referred to as, I think it's jnana dasana, knowledge and vision. Here the rendering is given as insight knowledge. But it's not really quite identical with insight knowledge in the sense of vipassana, in the sense of contemplating the impermanent suffering, selfless nature of the three of the five aggregates, but rather it's a kind of special kind of higher knowledge concerned with discriminating or distinguishing body and consciousness. Now, in this particular text, the Buddha doesn't mention how one begins to develop these higher knowledges. But elsewhere, it's generally explained that the basis or foundation for all of these higher knowledges, except the last one, the knowledge of liberation, is the fourth jhana. The fourth jhana is called in the commentaries, it's called the Padaka jhana, which means the basis jhana. And it's not enough simply just to attain the jhana, the fourth jhana, just a few times and to abide in it for short periods. But in order to develop these higher knowledges, one has to have a complete mastery of the fourth jhana. In fact, one has to have a complete mastery of all the jhanas. So that it's said in the text elsewhere when the Buddha is explaining how to develop these higher knowledges, he says, when the mind has been properly concentrated, when it is malleable, workable, adaptable, flexible, thoroughly free from the upakilesas, from the defilements, then he directs and inclines his mind to these various higher knowledges. Then the Visuddhimagga gives a way of explanation, it's a little fantastic, but perhaps it was actually practiced by the yogis, the monks who are real yogis. It said to, especially for gaining mastery of some of these supernormal powers, one has to have not merely four jhanas, but the eight attainments. The four jhanas and the four formless attainments. Then one has to be able to develop the ten or eight casinas, eight of the casinas, four element casinas, the four color casinas, in each jhana. So one will develop the first jhana, going very quickly into each of the casinas. (laughs) Then one will develop the second jhana with each of the casinas. 
the third jhana with each of the gasinas, fourth, all the way up to the eighth. Then one has to go down the, from the eighth jhana to the seventh, using all the gasinas, the seventh to the sixth, the sixth to the fifth, back to the first. Then one has to develop with one casino eight attainments back and forth. Then one has to be able to do first jhana earth casino, second jhana water casino, third jhana fire casino, fourth jhana air casino. The first formless attainment, the blue casino. Second formless attainment, red casino. Third formless attainment, yellow casino. Fourth formless attainment, white casino. And then backwards. So it becomes like a real mastery up and down of the, through all the jhanas using any of the casinos. Then one, when, when one masters that mode of practice, then the mind becomes extremely powerful and very, very flexible. That would be especially necessary for these practices like the mind-made body and these supernormal powers which will come to But the first of these higher knowledges it's called Jnana Dasana Knowledge and Vision. And here the text reads, okay, I have proclaimed to my disciples the way to understand thus this body of mind made of material form consisting of the four great elements born or created by mother and father and built up out of boiled rice and bread is subject to impermanence to being worn and rubbed away to dissolution and disintegration. It seems like the contemplation of impermanence, but I don't think it's really identical with the vipassana, with the insight knowledge of impermanence, which is the moment-by-moment observation of the arising and passing away of physical phenomena. But this is just, I think, using this general knowledge of the body in order to get a sense of the ultimate impermanence of the body, that is, when it perishes when it gets gradually worn out in old age and then perishes at death. And then one distinguishes the body from the consciousness. And one sees that the consciousness is something different from the body, that it's supported by the body and bound up with the body. Normally we don't have a very clear distinction of the difference of body and consciousness and so even the materialistic thinkers come to the conclusion that there is no real difference between consciousness and the body. They say the consciousness is just, they call it a higher order brain function. And so for them consciousness is just a kind of offshoot or off byproduct of the functioning of the body. But when one directs this very calm, pure, and concentrated mind to observe this complex of experience, then one sees a distinction between this body, which is just a lump of matter, something which is common to being through the sexual union of the parents, which is sustained by food, built up and growing through the ingestion of food and which eventually deteriorates, becomes worn out, then is discarded at death and then just dissolves into dust. One sees that is the body and then one sees that vinyana, consciousness, the faculty of knowing is something quite distinct from the body, but yet it's bound up with this body. That is, the body is the kind of support for the functioning of consciousness. 
It's not that consciousness is just the offshoot of the body, the byproduct of the body, but rather consciousness works or operates with the support of the body, independence on this body. So in order to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, there has to be this physical body as the basis. But we shouldn't think that seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, that that is just a material process, just the functioning of the body. But rather, one sees quite distinctly the body is one thing, consciousness, the mind, is something else. Then the Buddha gives a very striking simile in order to illustrate this. He he says, suppose that we have a beautiful beryl gem of the finest quality with eight faces, it's well cut, clear and limpid, possessed of all good qualities. And through it there will be a string, blue, yellow, red, white, brown, blue, yellow, red, white, or brown thread. And then a man with good eyesight would take the gem in his hand and would look at it and he would say, this is the beautiful gem, well cut, clear, and so on. And through it, there is this blue, yellow, red, white, or brown thread. Here we can say that the gem, <laughs> well, we shouldn't take it too literally, the gem is like the body and the string with thread going through it is like the consciousness. And so the gem is the support or basis for the thread, we can say. And the the gem is the basis for the thread, and the thread is what runs through the gem. But the thread is not identical with the gem. And we could even imagine that there will be perhaps a number of gems placed one after another and they're threaded onto the string. Like when one has a necklace with several gems and a thread going through it. And so we might think of these different gems as being like the physical body and the string going through it as being like consciousness. Just as we can have many gems, but there's just one consciousness going right through all of those gems, so there is one continuum of consciousness. Not a permanent soul, but it's an ongoing stream of consciousness. And that stream of consciousness (coughs) arises in dependence upon a series of physical bodies. When one body is worn out and discarded, then consciousness springs up based on another body and continues. (coughs) And here the meditator develops such keen and subtle sensitivity of the mind that he can look inside himself and see this very clear distinction between the body and the mind. Normally, with our undeveloped mind, if we attend very closely, we can see (coughs) some (coughs) difference of body and mind. We can see that the body is something that obeys our commands. (coughs) When we give instruction, raise the arm, then the arm goes up. Put the arm down, the arm goes down. (coughs) So here the consciousness is one thing, the body is what follows. Or else if the body is injured, if I hit something or touch a hot plate, 
then I get burnt. The body is the object that gets burned or that strikes. But then some awareness of pain comes. That awareness of pain is consciousness. But with our ordinary mind, we're not able to distinguish them very, very sharply. It's just very fuzzy, very vague, very muddy. It's a little bit like trying to see maybe the other side, a distant mountain on a misty day. We could just barely see the outline of the mountain. But in the case of the yogi who has mastered the fourth jhana, then when he looks at this mind-body complex, he could see very clearly the distinction, this physical organism, the body, and the functioning of consciousness. Just like the man who can see the distinction between the gem and the string running through. Okay, now we come to the next super knowledge. And this higher super knowledge actually seems to be a kind of extension of the previous one. It's a separate kind of knowledge, but it seems, this is my opinion, <laughs> which might be wrong, since this is not based on anything in the text, so I don't think it's even explained this way in the commentary, but it's, I notice that these two knowledges are often, I say always, added together. So that seems to imply that there's some connection between them, some kind of dependency of the one on the other. And so this second knowledge is called the mind-made body. Put this on. Okay, the text reads, I have proclaimed to my disciples the way to create from this body another body having form that is rupee. It's a body made of rupa, but it's mind-made, mano-maya. It's made, I would say, made by mind with all of its limbs, angapachanga, it's complete with all of its limbs, just like the regular physical body, lacking no faculty. That is, it's just, it looks exactly like a real physical body. <coughs> so I think and I, I have to admit this is pretty speculative, <laughs> that what happens is that once one masters this first knowledge, the knowledge and vision, where one can see the distinction between the body and the consciousness, one can make a determination to create a, a kind of physical, Astro, we call it, the, we use the term of, of the, was it theosophy? The astral body. It's really like an astral body which one is creating by a determination, an act of determination. Well, it might be the case that there is this body actually always present, and what is actually done through the determination is not to really create it in the first place, but just to extract it or to draw it out from the normal or full fun fully functioning physical body. So this is a very, very subtle kind of, it's a physical body, but yet it's so subtle that it doesn't have the ordinary characteristics of solid matter, probably so I don't have actual personal experience of these things. I haven't met one to my knowledge. But probably if one were to see it and you put your hand out to touch it, 
maybe you don't contact anything, the hand just goes through it, like through a ghost. Or maybe one will touch it. <laughs> or maybe it's like um, putting your hand through water, the hand will go through, but you feel something different. <coughs> and yet it seems that it's possible for the yogi, the meditator, who has discovered this mind-made body, or perhaps created it, to pull it out from the regular body and project it elsewhere, to send it elsewhere. And so a yogi who has created this body might be able to send it out and to make it travel around and explore different regions while the yogi is still sitting in his room or his kuti, absorbed with his physical body in the meditative state. Chulapantika is a different case. That will come to later. That is creating the multiple body. That is more, that's a feat of psychic power, but somewhat different from this. But though we don't ordinarily hear about these things from day to day, <laughs> there are, I believe, yogis in India, even up until recent times, who had that, the ability to perform this kind of feat. I remember there was a famous book, probably still in print, called The Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And when he was a youth in Bengal, he had met the yogis who had this, this power. It seems to be something even stemming from long before the Buddha's time, perhaps during the period of the Upanishad. The rishis, through their meditation, were able to discover the different, what they call the sheets or layers of the personality. And they distinguished the gross physical body, which they call, I think, the body consisting of food from the pranamaya kushna, the sheep consisting of prana, of the vital energies. And I think, and then they also discovered something called the manomaya kushna, the sheep consisting of mind. And perhaps that this mind-made body corresponds to that manomaya kushna, the sheep made of mind. Okay, in any case, the Buddha then illustrates this power or this knowledge, but again with some very interesting, impressive similes. He says that, suppose there were a man who were to pull a reed out from its sheep. You have that dry sheep, and inside the fresh reed, and you pull it out, and then you look at it and you can distinguish this is the sheep, this is the reed. The sheep is one, the reed is another, and it is from the sheep that the reed has been pulled out. Or again, it's like you have a scabbard and a sword, and you pull the sword out from the scabbard. You distinguish between the scabbard and the sword. Or this one, don't try, but it's given as a simile. Suppose a man were to pull a snake out from its slope, and he were to think, this is the snake, this is the slope. The snake is one, the slope is another. And it is from the slope that the snake has been pulled out. In the same way, the disciple is able to create from this gross physical body another body, this manomaya color. And since the similes that the Buddha uses, even when the Buddha explains how to create the mind-made body, he doesn't use, it doesn't in introduce the idea of pulling out the mind-made body. But the similes, if we take their implications and follow through the implications, 
it seems the point is not that the yogi actually creates this body from scratch. It seems that the mano mayakaya is actually there all the time. It's like a kind of inherent astral body. But what he does to so-called create it is to draw it out from the gross physical body. And it seems that in order to discover the manomayakaya, one has to have this very, very subtle, very sensitive discrimination mentioned in the first higher knowledge, the discrimination of consciousness and the body. It's only, this is again my opinion, only when that very clear and sharp sensitivity is present that one can scan the body and investigate it and discover within the body that mind-made body. And then when one can discover, when one discovers it, then one exercises this higher knowledge by finding out how to draw that body out from the physical body and how to maneuver it independently so that it can operate independently of the gross physical body. Okay, so that is the monomonia. Okay, then we come to the different modes of supernormal power. This is called idividanyana. Okay, these are the superpowers, the super types of supernormal power. Um, now with this higher knowledge, this is where we actually begin with the usual six abhinya, the six direct knowledges. And these super not superpowers, supernormal powers, these really require mastery, very thorough mastery of the jhanas with the different kasinas as a basis. And so the eight sup the supernormal powers come in a compact set of eight. Having been one, one becomes many. Having been many, one be again one becomes one. This is the kind of power that was exercised by Chula Pantaka in the famous story. Um, anyway, I'll tell the story. <laughs> Even though you've heard it, maybe some people have heard it several times. There was this two brothers <laughs> who had gone forth as monks in the Buddha Sasana. One was called, the older brother was called Mahapantaka, the younger brother was called Chulapantaka. And Mahapantaka was very intelligent. As soon as he went forth, he quickly learned the Buddha's teaching. He practiced meditation very diligently and very quickly he became an Arahant. But his younger brother, Chulapantaka, seemed to be very, very dull with it. Um, his older brother tried to teach him the Dhamma and gave him a four-line stanza to memorize. And he was a lot of trouble memorizing the stanza whenever he would rem memorize the first two lines. Then he would come to the second two lines by the time he memorized those, he had forgotten the first two lines. <laughs> and so he just couldn't um, get a grip on, on the standard. And not to mention any of the deep suttas or any of, this was just a very simple stanza on the virtues of the Buddha. And just he couldn't master, every time he would try to learn, he would forget. And then his older brother wanted to test him and would call him and ask him, okay, recite. And Chula Pantaka would try to recite and he would recite two lines 
and then third line, uh, uh, <laughs> 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 gee, brother, I just can't remember. <laughs> and then eventually Mahapantaka lost patience with him and told him that you're useless, you just won't succeed as a monk. Go, go back to the lay life. Get away, you just can't remain in the monastery. <coughs> and so Chulapantaka was very sad, he wanted to be to remain as a monk but he had to follow his older brother and so he packed up his belongings and he started to leave the monastery very sad and dejected in order to return home and become a layman again. But the Buddha was <laughs> sitting in the Gandakuri and he was meditating on the great compassion and then Chula Pantaka came into his field of vision. And he knew that Chula Pantaka had potential to become an Arhant, but that he would have to take instruction directly from himself, from the Buddha. <laughs> and so while Chula Pantaka was walking out of Jaitavana, then the Buddha designed that he would take a walk and would be walking on the very same road that Chula Pantaka was leaving by. <laughs> and so when Chula Pantaka uh, was walking, looking down, suddenly he looked up and saw the Master was coming, the Buddha in the distance. And the Buddha came up to Chula Pantaka and said, Why are you so sad today? And then Chula Pantaka explained that he was very slow in learning and his brother told him to leave the monastery and give up the monk's life. <coughs> and so the Buddha told Chula Pantaka, don't give up yet, let me just give you some instruction. I will just give you one more time to try, okay? And Chula Pantaka became happy and said, okay, I'll try one more time. And then the Buddha said, this time, you don't have to memorize a verse. I just give you one line to remember, just one statement. <coughs> the statement is removal of dirt. Can you get it? To the Pantica book. Removal of removal of what was the last word? <laughs> <laughs> Removal of dirt. Uh, removal of dirt. Okay. <laughs> this time he got it. But then the Buddha said, it's not enough just to recite the line, but you have to do one more thing. Can you do that? And Sula Pantic said, okay, I'll try. What is it? Then the Buddha gave him a little white cloth and said, while one is reciting, you just stay in the sun and rub the cloth with your fingers reciting that line. Can you do that? I can do it. But what was the line again? <laughs> <laughs> removal of dirt. <laughs> okay, removal of dirt, removal of dirt. <laughs> okay, so he stood in the sun and he was reciting removal of dirt, removal of dirt. And meanwhile, that day there was to be a outside dana <laughs> in the house of the, um, the Buddha's personal physician, Jivaka. <coughs> and so Jivaka had invited all the monks to come for the dana, and the brother, Mahapantaka, was the one who was in charge of organizing the dhamma. And so Jivaka came and said, um, are all the monks ready? He had invited, I think, 500 monks. And the older brother, Mahapantaka, said, all the monks are coming except Chulapantaka. I sent him away. 
what she couldn't learn of her. She's gone back to the home, she's going to become a layman. And so then all the monks, together with the Buddha, went to Jivaka's house and they sat down and before the Buddha was to pronounce the blessing at the beginning of the meal, he looked over the assembly and he saw that Chula Pantika was not there. And so he turned to Venkal Sariputta, who was at his right, and said, who is in charge of organizing this dhamma today? And Venkal Sariputta said, this was being done by Mahapantika. So then the Buddha turned to Mahapantika and said, isn't there one of the monks missing? And Mahapantika said, no, all the monks are here. But then the Buddha said, what about your brother Chula Pantika? He's not here. Then Mahapantika said, Chula Pantika is not a monk anymore. I sent him home and told him that he should disrobe himself. Then the Buddha said, as far as I understand, Chula Pantika is still a monk and he's still in the monastery. Send somebody back to get him. Meanwhile, Chula Pantika was standing in the cell, sitting in the sun, holding the cloth and reciting the line, removal of dirt, removal of dirt, and rolling the handkerchief back and forth in his hand. Then as he looked at the handkerchief, the white handkerchief, he saw that it was getting dirty and sweaty. And then he thought that now, as I do this, dirt is coming out from the body. That is the nature of this body, to give off sweat. And even though the hands seem clean, but the handkerchief is getting dirty. But then he reflected, through many past lives he had strong roots, good accumulations of wisdom, somehow was just obstructed by some surface um, impediment from the present life. But his innate wisdom was now becoming active and operative. And so while he was handling the handkerchief, he thought, the dirt that comes out from the body, yes, that is a kind of dirt. But that is the inseparable nature of the body. That is not the kind of dirt that we can really remove forever. But in the mind, there's greed. In the mind, there's hatred. In the mind, there's delusion. That is the real dirt. That is the dirt that we have to remove. Then as he went on reflecting in this way, his mind became tranquil, calm, and concentrated. He gave up this recitation and just let the mind drop deep inside, deep into this developing inner nucleus of calm and concentration. Then his mind became fixed one-pointedly, went deeper and deeper until it went into all the different jhanas. Then he came out from the jhanas and started examining the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, until he was able to contemplate the five aggregates, to see the five aggregates. Then very quickly there came the knowledge, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent suffering, non-self, and the five aggregates. Then the knowledge became sharper and sharper, keener and keener, deeper and deeper, until right on the spot he went through Sotapati, Sakaragami, Anagami, Arahat, not with simple arahatship, with, but with mastery over all the Abhinyas. <coughs> and all this time the messenger sent by Jivaka was coming to the monastery. And when, by the time the messenger had arrived at the monastery, Chula Pantika decided, now that he had the mastery of the, this ability of multiplying the body, he thought, let me just 
try out this experiment, see what it's like. And so we thought, let me become many. And so in the monastery, suddenly there appeared hundreds of monks looking exactly like Chulapantika. And when the messenger arrived, he saw many, many monks. And so he returned to Jivaka's house and reported, but he said, the Buddha said that there's one monk in the monastery. There's not one, but there's hundreds of them. Then the Buddha said, go back and call Chulapantika. <laughs> and so the messenger went back to the monastery and said, I want Chulapantika to come. Then the hundred or so monks said, but we're all Chulapantika. <coughs> And then the messenger went back to the house and said, <laughs> but they're all Chulapantika. Then the Buddha said, then you go to the monastery and you find that the first monk that you see, just grab hold of him and say, come to the dana. And so the messenger went back, grabbed hold of him and said, come to the first, uh, the first Chulapantika they saw and said, please come to the dana. And then when he said that, then all the hundred monks disappeared and there was only one monk before him, Chulapantika. <laughs> okay, so anyway, that's the story to illustrate this power of becoming, having one body becoming many, having many bodies becoming one. Okay, so the next power is the ability to appear and to disappear. That is actually first is the ability to disappear. So if one decides that one doesn't want to be seen, then one can make a determination and one will not be seen. And then if one wants to reappear, then one makes another determination and one will appear. It seems <coughs> anyway, okay. Okay, the next type of power is the ability to go unhindered through walls, through enclosures and through mountains as though through space. Here one makes the appropriate determination and even if there's a wall separating you from the next room, you can just go through the wall. If there's some kind of enclosure like a stone ramparts around the big fortress one or a fortress with stone ramparts then one can make the determination one will just go right through that stone if one wants to go even through a whole mountain one will come out the other side of the mountain and it seems that the way this power is exercised is through mastery. First one masters the various jhanas, but one uses especially the space casino. One will use a limited space casino. And in any physical object, and this is what science, what modern physics tells us, the solidity of it is just, in one sense we could say, a projection or an appearance. But if one understands, say, this, um, what is it called? A marker from the standpoint of physics, it's really 99.9% .9 just empty space. There's the nucleus, the nuclear particles, the electrons far away, and that's all there is. Everything else is just energy fields and space. And if we were to have like a big stadium, like a big 
cricket stadium and the nucleus would just be like a few cashew nuts in the center of the stadium. The electrons would be like some specks of dust in the back seat and the rest would be like an empty stadium. And so somebody who masters the space casino and gets this very clear experiential knowledge of the nature of empty space is able to focus the mind on any solid object and just attend to it by way of the space element. And by attending to it in terms of the space element, the mind or consciousness perceives it and actually merges with it in a sense by way of the space element. So not for that mind focusing on the space element, nothing of the object is present except the empty space. And in that way one can just go right through that object as if it's empty space. Other people who don't have that knowledge, they'll be obstructed. But the yogi, the meditation master, for him it's just empty space. So it said that one who has really mastered this power to a very high degree can also make a determination for others. This is unbelievable to our mind. But he can say, I want others also to experience this object as empty space. And through the power of his mind, he's able to determine that the, for a certain group of people, when they come to that obstruction, it will be for them also just empty space, even though they haven't developed their mind to the level of that space to see. Okay, he's able to dive in and out of the earth, the earth element. But if one who has mastered the casinas, especially in this case, mastered the water casino, he would first have to master all four casinas, but then he would focus upon the solid ground in terms of the water casino and just choose the water element in the solid ground and then focus that the solid ground is only water just the water element there and then he gains the water casino through the ground and then projects that image of water that psychic um, psychic psychic image of water projects, a psychic apprehension of water projects it onto the solid ground, then the solid ground becomes like water. For him it actually becomes water so that he can dive in and out, he can scoop it up in cups, can bathe in it, um, splash around in it. And for those who have really mastered this practice, they could even turn the solid ground into water for other people so that other people could swim in it, um, wash in it, drink it, it becomes for them like water also. Let's take Okay, they walk on water without sinking as if it were earth. Again, that's just done in the reverse way. One takes something that's water and after mastering the various casinas, one focuses upon that water as earth element until one can experience it just like the earth element. Okay, then seated cross-legged, they travel in space like a bird. 
it seems for this one masters the wind element and so one's body becomes just like wind moving through space then with the hands they can reach out touch and stroke the sun and moon and they can wield bodily mastery even as far as the Brahma world that is one who masters this can send the body even up to the Brahma world and maybe can send other people can bring other people too into the Brahma world and the Buddha uses another simile to show how this power is exercised it's just like a skilled potter who is able to take a mass of clay and prepare various objects very simple something that he's well trained in doing for an ivory worker can fashion different works of art out of ivory or a skilled goldsmith might create various objects out of gold in the same way the disciple who has mastered the different modes of psychic of supernormal power can exercise all these various supernormal powers okay maybe we will stop at this point and then we will cover the remaining abhinas the next, next time I should mention that the next class next week will be Thursday will be still part of the Vesak holiday so we will have the next class on two Thursdays that is 29th of May is that correct? and then I should mention also I didn't and I should mention also that on Sunday this coming Sunday May 18th that's at 4.30 p.m. we will have a lecture a special Vesak talk on the topic Buddhism in a value-changing society the speaker is Venerable Begale Mahindatera he is quite a young monk but very intelligent, very capable. He went to the United States. He studied at the University of Chicago Divinity School. It's actually one of the best schools for religious studies in the whole United States. And he got a PhD from there. And so he's very intelligent, very capable. And so I suggest that also the problem of changing values is a very crucial problem for Buddhist people today so I'm sure that he will have some very interesting and illuminating remarks on this topic so please come to that lecture it will be here, right here 4.30 p.m. okay then if there are any um, questions on the material covered in the talk then please Please I think what this ha- the question is if the person has the mind made body then how can he have all the faculties my basis of course I said I, I'm speaking on the basis of speculation not actual knowledge my just my guess would be that he what's meant is that he appears to be a fully endowed human being so that when you look at him there are the arms legs head mouth eyes ears um, everything looks normal and so one will never suspect that it's just a 
a body made by mind. But it might be the case, actually, that the body is solid. I think... I doubt that the mind-made body could have a separate consciousness from that of the original person. I really don't know, actually. Yeah. Other people will see it. Many other people can see it. In fact, I believe this is probably the body, according to the Theravada tradition, when the Buddha was teaching in the Devalokan, the, over the three-month period, the, um, he was teaching the Abhidhamma and the Tabatings of Devalok. <laughs> then he would go each day down to the human world in order to go on alms round. And so he would create a Manomayakaya to teach the Abhidhamma in the Devalok. while he himself, with his physical body, went on arms round in the human world. And so, all the devas would see the Buddha um, sitting there teaching, while his physical body was going on arms round in the human world. Anyway, these things sort of go on <laughs> the very um, outer limits of human understanding. Please don't expect me to get very exact, <laughs> infallible scientific explanations. That brings up my question. I mean, the Buddha was mentioning so often what I'm teaching is suffering and how to get out of suffering. Yeah. What has this to do with it? That sounds like like a circus game. <laughs> or is it that uh, he was teaching to play with that what we take so important? We give such a high importance to the body and what he's uh, showing is to play games with it. I don't think it's for the purpose of playing games. The Buddha wouldn't teach that. First, I would say that I think that statement of the Buddha, it's the way it's translated, commonly translated, it's a little misleading. It's dukancheva panya pemi, dukancha, dukasecha, nirodo. The cheva, you see, eva, sometimes it means only. But when you have two things joined with ch, the eva has the function of saying and also. So what the Buddha is saying is I teach suffering and also the cessation of suffering. I don't think it's really correct to translate it, though I think I've done this before, what I teach is only suffering and the cessation of suffering. It's a little misleading. Because the Buddha teaches other things besides dukkha, dukkha nirodha. He also teaches the way to a happy heavenly rebirth. But that from the level of relative truth, that's dukkha. <laughs> but the Buddha is actually teaching it. Not as dukkha, he's teaching it as desirable for those who want it. And this is just my... I've really never seen this question discussed in the commentaries if, he, if he's teaching, or in the tradition itself, if he's teaching suffering and the end of suffering, why is he teaching these supernormal powers? And also, this is in the Diganikaya, also one place in the Anguttara, especially in the Diganikaya, some householder comes to the Buddha and says, why don't you work some supernormal feats so that um, you'll get more lay people will be impressed and they will come to the sasana. And then the Buddha says that I don't really have much esteem for these supernormal powers. Uh, I don't have much esteem for these miracles of mind reading. But the true miracle in my teaching is the miracle of instruction. Anusasana Abhihara. The ability to say you should think in this way, not in that way. You should direct your mind in this way, not in that way. You should abandon the defilements, develop virtuous statements. Okay, so the Buddha does speak in that way, but I think, this is just my idea, that at the time there were these 
or I would give two explanations. At the time, there must have been other yogis and other systems and other spiritual systems who had these powers. And so, if the Buddha himself only developed <laughs> the Pasana jnanas and developed the way to liberation, and if he taught his disciples only the, the way, the straight way of liberation, and didn't teach them the way of these supernormal powers, <coughs> then there would be the outside yogis, the outside ascetics who have these powers <laughs> and they come to the Buddha and the Buddhist monks and they have to say, no, we don't have them, <laughs> but we do have the way to liberation from suffering. <laughs> <laughs> and the lay people, not the Buddhist lay people, but the, just the ordinary householders say, very well and good, we'll go to the other ascetics and <laughs> invite them for a time. Maybe we have a little left on the rice, <laughs> give it to the Buddhist Sangha, but prepare a nice food for the other, the other ascetics. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 no, I, I'm not quite finished yet. Okay, but if the Buddha and the Buddhist monks can say, yes, we have these powers, and if the Buddha can show them, then that will be not just to build up the prestige of the household people, but that will show them at least at their level of understanding that there's something real, real substance, and something really valuable <laughs> in the Buddhist teaching. And so maybe for some people then they will get faith in the Buddhist teaching. But also I have to add also that the Buddha has made it an actually an offense for the Buddhist monks to display these powers to lay people and even to claim that they have these powers. If they do it falsely, it's a parajika in an offense of expulsion from the Sangha. If it's a true claim but made to people who are not fully ordained, even samaneras, novices, it's still a minor offense, what we call a pachitya. But I think at the time of the Buddha, it was still important for the Buddha and his disciples to have these powers even though they were not directly connected to the path to liberation. Okay, that's one explanation that I can think of. The other explanation is that those who develop these powers are able to use them under special circumstances wisely for the sake of helping others out of compassion, but not in a way to sort of boost up their own prestige. So the Buddha will emphasize the qualities like removal of defilements, development of wisdom, liberation from the kilesas, from the, all the bonds and fetters, but still one who has mastered these abhinyas, these higher knowledges, will, and who has also true wisdom and insight, will know the right circumstances, the right conditions, for exercising these powers without displaying them to others in a coarse way, in order to using them in order to teach and to transform others. It seems that this is the interesting thing. The way it's given in the text, the, the Buddha doesn't mention special exercises for developing these, but he does mention that the meditator directs his mind to develop them. So one would think that he has to make a deliberate effort to, de in most cases, to develop them. It's not just something that arises spontaneously with wisdom, because there were, at the Buddha's time, there were also arahants 
In fact, the great majority of arhats didn't have these powers. I would say only a relatively small number did. So that it's not the natural accompaniments of um, developing the jhanas and the, the, uh, the true knowledge, the insight wisdom. And when I want to say you explain, you know, yeah. this is something that we call Manjabi Yeah, this is a... And then, only a person who has attained that portion, he knows it. Outsiders, I don't think they can understand that because, as I said, uh, it is the after completion of certain avatars, certain power for living birds, you can attain that after the after the after the after the after the after the after Paramis can develop them, um, or if they have the paramis, and that's a strong supporting condition for developing them. But the paramis themselves are n- alone are not sufficient condition. There also has to be deliberate effort to one has to make a, a deliberate effort to undertake certain practices here and now to develop them. These practices of the mastery of the casinas and then um, developing the different jhanic stages in, with, in relation to the different casinos. And then, well, that's how it works. Okay, I think, yeah. They're not, absolutely, they're not necessary. The only way that's really necessary is the way of insight knowledge. These are just, I would call them ornaments of a yogi, or ornaments of the dispensation, but they're not the core or the heart. Okay, I think we will have to stop now and then continue in two weeks.